Well, hey there, my name's Eric Gray, and I'm the Young Adult and Family Minister here at the Regency Church of Christ. I just want to take a minute and say thank you for checking out this message. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. And to find out more information about Regency or to listen to other messages from this series, we'd love for you to check out our website at regencycc.org. And we're praying that this message will help you grow closer to Jesus. So whenever Jesus wanted to make a really strong point, a lot of times he would tell a story. We know that those stories are called parables. He would take a story that everyone could understand, use elements that were very real to them, and use that to communicate a very strong truth. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. And I'm going to guess, based on our crowd tonight, that most of us have a pretty good idea as to what's in Luke 15, especially once we get into the parable that in your mind you're going to go ahead and jump to the end of the story because we've heard it several times. And you probably remember that Jesus in those three stories, that they were all different, yet they were all the same. He tells a story about a woman who lost a coin and sweeps her whole house to find it and rejoices and celebrates when she does. A shepherd who has a hundred sheep loses one and searches until he finds the one and then throws a party to celebrate finding the one lost sheep. And then the third longest parable, one of the longest parables that Jesus told, was the the parable about the father who had two sons. And we call the parable the the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know if that's the best way to refer to the parable, because the parable is really not about the son. The parable is really about the father. And it's not just about the prodigal son. If you remember, the father has two sons, is how he introduces the parable. So I want us to look at this parable quickly tonight, really just kind of describe it, um, and then take that and make some application for us. So you remember a father has two sons, and we meet the first son uh, initially in the story. He's a wild young man. He's free-spirited. He's ready to leave home. In fact, he comes to his father and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance because I want to leave. He didn't want to wait on his dad to pass away. He wanted to go. And his father, being gracious, gives him his inheritance And the son leaves. And it says he travels to a far country. And there he spends his life and spends his stuff in wild living or in prodigal living. There's friends. He's living the party life. There's probably alcohol and who knows what else. Until his money runs out. And a famine hits the land at the same time. Sometimes life works out that way, doesn't it? That when you're down, you get really down. And it tells us that he realizes he needs to get a job. He's hungry. He has no money, and he needs to get a job. And so the only job that he can find is feeding pigs. Now, this is really interesting for a Jewish young man who's grown up learning that pigs were unclean, that you don't go anywhere near them, you don't work with them, you don't feed them, you certainly don't eat anything from a pig. And so he finds himself feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that it tells us in Luke 15, verse 16, that he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. Now, I don't know about you, this is the definition to me of starving. So have you ever said or do your kids say, oh, I'm starving? I used to say that, and then someone pointed out, hey, you shouldn't say that because there are people around the world that are really starving. So now when my kids say it, I tell them, no, you're not starving, you're hungry. And there's a difference between hungry and starving. In fact, you might be a little bit hangry right now because you're so hungry, but you are not 
starving. And there's a, a drastic difference. How do you know if you're starving? It's not just how many meals have you missed, but if you looked at a bowl, at a bucket full or a trough full of slop, if you are tempted to eat it, you are in fact starving. This guy is at rock bottom. And what I find really interesting about this parable is at this point, he thinks of home. The one place he wanted to leave, couldn't wait to get away from home. He remembers what life was like in dad's house. And so he decides, I'm just going to go back home. But he assumes that there's no way things could ever be the same. Not the way that I acted, not the way I just walked out and left. Maybe dad tried to get him to rethink it and he refused to listen. And he knows if he goes back and he's wasted all of his money and he's gotten in such hard times, there's no way dad's going to ever let me back in the door. And so best case scenario, maybe he'll just let me be a servant. I can live in the servant's quarters. I at least have a roof over my head. I have food on the table. Yeah, I'll have to work hard, but at least I'm not starving. And so he takes a risk and he starts traveling home. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus really starts teaching. Because it says that as the young man's traveling home, while he's still a long ways away, his father looks out and he sees him. And it says he's filled with compassion. That's the line that everyone listening to the parable goes, what? There's no way. Compassion? Not after what this kid did. And the father runs and he meets his child and he doesn't run to chew him out. He doesn't run to shame him. He doesn't run to kick him off of his property. He runs to him. He embraces him. The son begins his speech. Father, I know I did what I shouldn't have done. He just ignores it. He calls back to the house. Go get him a robe. Get him the ring. Kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party and celebrate. And then that key line, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that is the point of the story. That someone who was far from God had the opportunity to come home. So here's the question I want us to consider tonight. When someone who is far from God wants to come home, what will we do when they come to us? Because if you think about it, if someone who is far from God decides that they want to come home, where are they going to go? Generally, they're going to go to a church. They're going to attend a worship service. They're going to go to a small group. They're going to call going to start some kind of Bible study. Somehow, some way, they're going to interact with us. What are we going to do? Well, in this story, we know what God did because God is represented in the actions of the father. That the father runs to meet his child. The father is filled with compassion. The father embraces the son. And what I find really interesting is where the son has been. He's been working in a pig pen. And I heard this saying a long time ago from a wise man. He said, if you wrestle with pigs, you're going to get muddy. So we know that this guy working in a pig pen, that this son is filthy. He hasn't had time to bathe and to clean up. He's probably homeless. We know he's starving. And when he gets home, dad doesn't say, well, hey, son, why don't you go inside and clean up? Then we'll do the whole hug thing. Hey, son, we're just going to shake hands because you smell pretty terrible. It says that he embraces him, throws his arms around him. I'm so glad to see you. He embraces the young man's dirtiness. We know that's how God acts. And we know that God truly celebrates the return of his children, the return of someone who is far 
from him. So when somebody decides to come home, will they feel at home? That's the question I want us to consider tonight. If you think about it, someone who decides to come home, who's been living far from God, they've got a thousand reasons why they wouldn't come home. A thousand assumptions in their mind, a thousand perceptions of what it's going to be like that really could keep them from making that decision. Here's a couple. They might think, I'm too messed up. I have done way too much. I have been with the wrong people. I have tried the wrong things. I have lived a wild and rebellious life. I'm too far from God. I am too dirty. I am too messed up. There's no way he would ever take me back. That's one perception. The other perception is, I am too messed up. I am too dirty. There's no one, there's no way anyone there will ever accept me. It's definitely a real perception. Someone might think, well, I don't know what, I, what to do when I get there. Especially if they've not grown up in church, they may pull in and go, where do I go? When I get inside, what do I do? What do I say? They sit in a service and they go, am I supposed to sing? What do I do? How do I pray? Do I just sit quietly? What do I do with this cracker and juice? What do I do with my hands? I don't want to do anything wrong, right? And it can make somebody nervous. What if I don't fit in? What if I get there and nobody talks to me? They look at me and they say, oh, that, guy, that girl looks a little bit messed up. What if I do something wrong? So when someone takes a chance and decides to come home, will they have the same experience that the prodigal son had when he decided to go home? Because we know this, when someone walks into the doors of our church for the first time, their expectations are probably not very high. Because again, if they've been living far from God, there's all these perceptions and assumptions of what's going to happen because of the lifestyle that they have been living. And they have probably set their expectations pretty low. That way they're not utterly disappointed. You ever done that? Maybe you walk into a restaurant and you've heard things or you've drove by this place and it doesn't look very good. So you kind of set your expectations low. And sometimes they're blown out of the water and it's the greatest place. And you're like, I got to tell you about this little hole in the wall. It doesn't look like much, but it's absolutely amazing. And other times you walk in and your expectations are met. It was as terrible and disgusting as you thought it might be. And you vowed you would never go there again. But you walked in with very low expectations. And when someone comes into our services or walks into our building that has been living a life distant from the Lord, most likely their expectations are pretty low. So how can we help them experience far greater than what they are expecting. Here's what I think we can do. A couple of points of application for us tonight. First thing is, we've got to remember that we are in the hospitality business. I know that's a weird way to put it. Andrew and I went to a conference uh, recently, and uh, the guy who owns the Ritz-Carlton got up and is talking to a bunch of church leaders, and he's talking about being in the hospitality business. And he, he said in that session... You are all in the hospitality business. And if you think about it, he's absolutely right. Because the scriptures uh, call us as Christians to be hospitable. It means that we are welcoming. There's this great line from St. Benedict around 500 AD who said, If a guest arrives, treat him or her as if they were Jesus himself. They had it figured out all the way back in 500 AD of how to treat a newcomer who walks into the services. What do you do? You just treat them like Jesus. And here's why that's important. Because we get only one shot at a first impression. One shot. 
And first impressions are made within seven seconds of being on site. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Seven seconds and we only get one shot to form a favorable first impression. Have you ever had a first impression of a place, of a business, of an organization, of a church? And to this day, it was a bad first impression and it doesn't matter what they do. Doesn't matter if they change management. Doesn't matter if they paint. It does not matter. Your impression will never change. You will always have that bad first experience. One shot. That's why it's important. And think about this. If we ask you to invite your friends, neighbors, family, don't you want them to have a great experience? Don't you want them to come in and to feel welcomed? Don't you want them to have that opportunity to have their life changed? If you're going to take the risk of faith, if you're going to step out and invite somebody or begin a Bible study or walk with someone on that uh, goal and that road to salvation, don't you want them when they walk in the doors here to have a great first impression? And think about it like this. If people don't have a good experience, they won't come back. And if they don't come back, how can they meet Jesus? Because if God chose to send them here, shouldn't we be ready? We're in the hospitality business. Here's the second thing. I think we should drop the us and them language. Here's what I mean by that. That when we talk about Christians, we talk about us. When we talk about the world, we talk about them. I think that language can be really devastating and detrimental to us. And there I use the word us, okay? I'm talking about as we refer to, quote, the world. Here's what we know. We know that there are people who are here and those that aren't here yet. It's not a them. It's a group that we want to be a part of this family. That sometimes we can spend a lot of time talking about outsiders and not actually talking to outsiders. We can spend a lot of time talking about the world and how evil and wicked it is, and we can huddle together and not take that as a challenge to go into the world and to shine the light. That we can talk about all the stuff that's going wrong and not do anything to make it better and to do something right. That we can talk about why don't people love the Lord and not actually talk to somebody about why they should love the Lord. We've got to drop the us and them language and change our mindset to more inclusive. That it's not about what's going wrong, it's about what can we make right. Where can we bring goodness into the world? The world's not going to change. It's been the way it's been since Genesis 3 and the challenge has been the same since Genesis 3. Bring goodness into the world. Be salt, be light. That's our challenge. All for the purpose so that someone will see and glorify God. That they will be attracted to light. That's our challenge. To be careful about the language that we're using. To not make someone feel as though they are excluded from what God is trying to do here, around us, through us, in them, in their life. That we want to be very inclusive in what we're doing. And here's the third one. This might be the most challenging one. We've got to get comfortable with a little bit of mess. If you want to read about a really messy church, just open up to the book of Acts. It's, not more me- it's probably not messier than maybe 1 Corinthians although, or the Corinthian church, although it might be. That first century church that we read about in the book of Acts 
had a lot of chaos and craziness going on. In fact, things got so difficult that they called a major church meeting. They called all the church leaders from around the area, brought them all to Jerusalem, and there they had this major meeting of how can we fix what's going on. What they were trying to do was bring multiple ethnicities and nationalities and people from different religious backgrounds, and they're trying to bring them together under the name of Jesus. And you have people who are coming out of Judaism. You have people who are coming out of paganism. You have people who are just coming out of nothing, and they're coming into Christianity. They're learning about Jesus. They're coming into this family of faith, and they're bringing all their background and baggage and issues with them. They're bringing all their opinions and thoughts of how they think it should be. And I'm just talking about the apostles and many of the church leaders, not even talking about the church members. Even the church leaders didn't fully agree on what they should do, and it was a mess. Because where you see growth, you will always find mess. Growth can be messy. So there's a line in Acts 15 and verse 19, spoken by the brother of, of our Lord, spoken by James, who said something so profound. He said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, contextually, we shouldn't bind all of these traditions and regulations that God has not bound on them. We should not make it more difficult. In fact, they boiled it down to just a couple of things. Here's what you need to do to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And I think that challenges for us as well, that we should not make it difficult for someone who is turning to to God, that our goal really should be to make it as easy as possible for somebody to meet their compassionate Father. So, I've got a couple of questions for us. Are we willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone turning to God? And I'm not just talking about somebody sitting in your seat, okay? Are we willing to be inconvenienced, to be made a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of someone turning to God? Because it can get messy. Are we willing to embrace messy people for the sake of them turning to God? Are we willing to embrace someone who's coming out of a rough lifestyle or who has spent the night before doing things they probably shouldn't, but then they walk into the doors here and whatever they smell like and whatever might still be on them or whatever they might be wearing, that we embrace them, that we celebrate that they're here. Are we willing to embrace messy people? Is our goal, ultimate goal, to live like Jesus and to share his love so that someone who is far from God can come home? So several years ago, there was a, a church that we were a part of that had a really big couple of weeks. Big push to invite friends and neighbors and had, I can't tell you how many first-time guests with us on one Sunday. It was exciting. Building was packed. Worship was great. And on that day, someone decided, who had been invited, to give their life to the Lord, responded to the invitation at the end of the service, and was baptized into Christ. Talk about excitement. Isn't that what it's all about? And when it was over, when they came up out of the water, the church erupted in applause, celebrating this event. The next Sunday, there weren't quite as many who came back, but that next Sunday, there were still many of those guests who came back. It wasn't 100% return, but it was a really good return. And guess what happened the second Sunday? 
Somebody else got baptized. Man, you talk about evangelism working, right? We could do a big numbers push, or we could do a friends and family day, and if we could get 100 guests to come into our building, and then the next Sunday we could get 50 to come back. And both Sundays we had baptisms. I'd say, hey, something's working. God's working among us, right? And that second Sunday after that baptism, the church celebrated with applause. Now, the building was filled with a lot of people who did not grow up in that place. A lot of people who did not regularly attend that church or a church like it and celebrated how they knew people celebrated, whether it's at a ball game, whether it's at a recital, whether it's at a band performance, that when you celebrate something, they put their hands together and they applauded. There were some people who didn't like that. I'm just going to step aside from opinions. You have, you have your opinion on that. I have my opinion on that. But there were some people who didn't like that, kind of fussed about it. And a decision was made that killed the momentum that, that those two weeks had created, that it really wasn't an issue of people clapping after a baptism. It was deeper than that. But that was the issue that people held on to that killed the momentum and growth of that group of Christians. Something like that. You see, growth is messy. Growth is really messy. In fact, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable. But isn't faith about being a little bit uncomfortable? Isn't part of faith being uprooted a little bit and that foundation shaking a little bit. And God say go, and we go, oh, okay. God, I, I don't know about this. It's a little crazy. I've never done that before. Growth can be messy. But our goal should be to make it as easy as possible for someone to meet their compassionate Father. Now, I'm not saying we abandon Scripture. I'm not saying we abandon principle. I'm saying that whatever we can do to make it where someone can come home, that we're ready. So here's a couple of things that I think we can do. How can we make it easy for someone to come home? Here's the first one. Having great guest experience. That we excel in hospitality. Now every church thinks they're a friendly church, right? We think we're a friendly church. Do you know why we think we're a friendly church? Because we talk to each other, right? And every time you walk in the building, you have a great experience. But for some of us, it's been a while since we were here for the first time. And when you're no longer here for the first time, and especially when you've been here for a while, it's easy to forget what it's like to be here for the first time. And that's a challenge that we must all regularly go through. If I was here for the first time, what would I want someone to do? I just want somebody to make me feel more comfortable. Speak to me. Not call me out as a visitor. Oh, let me slap this visitor tag on you. Not sure where that idea came. Let's just put an hi, I'm new. You know, that's nobody, nobody wants to feel new, right? We all want to feel like we belong. Now, obviously, sometimes we're new and we don't know exactly what to do, but we want to look like we know exactly what we're doing. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, 14, 34, 74, you want to feel like you fit in. We've got to excel at guest experience. We've got to have a welcoming environment. And yeah, I think those are a little bit different. 
that our environment is expecting people here for the first time, that we expect people that are new and that we acknowledge them. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. And here's what's going to go on, that we answer the questions that they have in their mind. Because if they've never attended church or they've never attended a church of Christ before, they've got several questions. First off, where's the rest of the stuff on stage to make the music, right? That's a big question. Secondly, what do I do during the time they start passing trays? Uh, What do I do when we sing? What's the sermon about? Uh, What am I supposed to do when I first get here? Great welcoming environment, trying to answer a lot of those questions before they're asked. Here's the third one, having authentic and engaging worship. I have in my notes authentic worshipers because what I think that means is, is that worship should be authentic and engaging for us. That if we look like we don't care, they'll pick up pretty quickly. Now, I don't necessarily know how you look like you care, but I know how you look like you don't care, right? You know how someone looks like when they don't care. And if that's our face, if that's our emotive response during worship, then someone's going to pick up on that and say, well, if they don't care, I guess I shouldn't care, right? That we all search inwardly, what does it look like for me to authentically worship on a regular basis and engage in my worship, engage my heart, mind, and soul as God has called me to do so that the person who is sitting beside me might also engage or their interest might be piqued and say, man, that really meant a lot to them. Why does that mean so much to you? You were really singing there. I could tell you were really in tune to the prayer or to, to the communion time. Authentic and engaging worship. Here's the next one. You might think it's, it's simple or silly, but a great kid's environment. That if we have people that come in with children, they want to know that their children are cared for. The greatest way to get somebody to come back is for their children to have a great time. Because when the kids start begging, can we please go back? Please, mom, dad, get up. We got to go. I want us to be there. Boy, you talk about uh, getting some adults here. But when kids get in the car and... and Parents ask them, well, how was it? Nah, it's terrible. Yeah, please don't make us go back. Well, that's not really encouraging, right? Nobody wants to drag their kids. So having a great kids environment where they're having an engaging time, uh, where they're learning and having a, having a fun experience, that's definitely a way that we can continue to make it easy for somebody to come home. This next one, good coffee. And no, I'm not joking. Having good coffee actually helps because when someone walks into a place for the first time, What do you do? What do you do? You stand around? Do you go sit down? If you have coffee in between time or in Bible class or whatever, you at least have something to do with your hands. That's something Andrew and I were talking about the other day. Like, what do I do with my hands? Do I put them in my pockets so that no one will shake them? Do I keep them out? Do I hold them together? Having something to hold? I don't know about you, it brings me comfort. And coffee breeds conversation, doesn't it? Does it, it does so in the coffee shop. It does so anywhere. And I'm not just talking about coffee. I'm just talking about whatever that is because I personally despise coffee. So I'd love if we had something different. Um, here's the next one. Great conversations and inviting members. That when we see somebody who looks like they're new, we go meet them. And they may tell you, no, I've actually attended church here for two years. Okay, well, I'm sorry I haven't met you before. That's the beauty of being new, right? I meet everybody and they tell me, oh, are you you new here? No, I've gone here for 20 years. Okay, well, I'm so glad to meet you. Sorry I haven't done that yet. 
if you worry, ah, I don't know their name, well, just ask them. It doesn't matter if you've known them for a long time. Just tell them, hey, I'm sorry, I'm struggling right now, but your name's important to me, and I want to know it. Can you tell me your name again? I think that that authenticity speaks to people, that good conversations and inviting members, inviting them back to service, out to lunch, over for dinner. Hey, do you want to join our life group? That that will help us make it easier for somebody to come home. And then here's the last one. Celebrate lives being changed. We've got to be great at celebrating that when someone gives their life to Christ, it's got to be the highlight of our week. Because what greater moment What greater purpose that we're called to fulfill than someone coming home. And when they actually do it, when they actually take the risk, they get over their false perceptions, they get over the wrong assumptions that they've had, they walk into the door, they have a great experience, maybe they come back, maybe they come back again, they hear the good news of Jesus, they decide, you know what, I want to give my life to that man as well, and they go into the waters of baptism, that that should be the highlight, that should be the thing that we celebrate the most. It's more important than any trip we're going to go on. It's more important than any event that we're going to have because that's what it's all about. It's all about bringing glory to God and helping someone far from God come home to be part of the body of Christ. And we should celebrate it. Whatever that looks like, we should celebrate it. It should be something that excites us. It should be something that we put out for the world to see, that we share on our social media pages, whether it's the church or your personal one, that it's something that we talk about, that it, it, we embrace that individual, that they know, man, this is a big deal. They walk out of that baptistry, they come back into the room, and they are greeted by a couple hundred people who are wrapping their arms around them, who are so joyful, that they're not just saying, congrats, so happy for you, but... Filled with emotion, this is awesome, we are so excited. I know we all have different emotive responses, but again, you know what it looks like when someone doesn't care, and you know what it looks like for you to express that you care, and that we take that time to celebrate the lives that are being changed, because that's one of the greatest reasons that we gather, that we encourage each other. I don't know if you know, it's really important to me that we excel at this really important to me. Here's why. Over 15 years ago, a man that I know decided that it was time for him to come back to God. He walked into a small church, he met a group of people that embraced him and his family with wide open arms. They shared the gospel of Jesus with him. They walked with him through the changes he was trying to make. They celebrated with them well when he and his wife were baptized into Christ. A few months later, I walked into that same church and met this man's stepdaughter. She and I quickly became friends, had the opportunity to share the gospel with her, witness her being baptized into Christ. Ten months later, we got married. Yeah, it was pretty quick. All right, it's okay, don't judge me. Love at first sight, right? My life was forever changed uh, because my family's, my wife's family was forever changed, all because they walked into a church and met a group of people who were ready to help them come home. Will we be ready, church, when someone decides to come home and they come walking through our doors? Will we be ready? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for each person that you have sent into this place, that you have sent into our lives, who is seeking to come home. 
Father, for those that came on a day or at a time when we weren't ready, Lord, we repent of that. We beg for your forgiveness. Father, that you entrusted them to us, that they might discover you and find you, and that they were here and we weren't quite ready. Father, our prayer is that from this moment on, that each time we gather together, that we not only expect someone to come through those doors searching for you, but that we're prepared, this place is ready, that our hearts are ready, uh, that we are ready to walk with them, whatever that looks like, however messy they are, whatever struggles they have, that you give us the patience, the wisdom, that we could step into their life and show them your love, that we could live for them, Jesus, on this earth. So, Father, give us the courage, give us the faith, give us the patience and the wisdom that we're going to need as we continue to move forward into the future. Father, as we prepare for a new year in just a few weeks, that one of the things that becomes very important to us as a church family, Lord, that you would give us the conviction to be ready when someone decides to come home, that each one of us takes it as a personal challenge, that we do something, that we speak up, we say hi, we invite, whatever it might be, to help someone find you. Father, thank you for the people that you have placed in our life that helped us come home. Whether it was a group of Christians, whether it was a family, uh, whether it was an individual that you placed in our life at just the right time that shared with us the love of Christ and walked with us on that journey that brought us to you. Father, thank you for running to meet us, for embracing us with open arms. And Father, as your people, we ask that you would give us the courage, the faith, to do the same. Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight that we might encourage each other and make one another stronger. In Jesus we pray. Amen.